This morning in the Atlanta airport, no one's missing a meal on Mac Wilburn's watch. With 11 restaurants to serve passengers, he's got dining for every destination. And it all started when Mac talked with First Horizon Bank about opening a franchise in the airport. Now it's open for business and cleared for takeoff. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Mac. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Let's Talk About It with Janelle King. All right. Welcome to Let's Talk About It with Janelle King, the podcast. And I have John Martian in... John Marsh. (laughs) Not John Martian. He's not a Martian. John Marsh here. And um, he is my favorite historian. I can actually say that. We've talked enough where... I really believe that you're my favorite, and that's because I like to understand history. I like to learn about history, but I haven't always found people or came across people who knew how to explain it in layman's terms. So I really, really appreciate that with you. So this podcast, we're going to talk about trade and just some other aspects of the Constitution. Just kind of, I'm going to let you all in on John and I conversations because I'm really trying to understand the history of our country. And as I stated before, I am a little, I'm struggling a little bit with the whole Republican title because I really feel like I'm more of a constitutionalist and I have a little bit of some libertarian in me. So a constitutionalist is, is pretty much exactly who I am. And uh, so, and I believe you're the same way, John, because you, you thoroughly understand this. So if you can just kind of give us a, a, for the people who are listening on the podcast, if you haven't heard him on the radio, um, you will. And, but for those who haven't heard you, can you just give us a little bit of background about why you are such a just a, a extraordinary historian? Well, how'd you get here? Okay, so <laughs> I guess I had the good luck of having a really bad seventh grade set of teachers, <laughs> and they were so bad that um, my parents pulled me out of school, out of that school, and put me into a school that had been started by two college professors, one a history professor and one an English professor. Mm -hmm. And they started that school for their own children. And so when their oldest son was time for the first grade, they started the first grade, and then they kept adding one grade a year (laughs) until um, they had all 12 grades. Mm -hmm. I went there in the eighth grade. And um, once I when I got to college, I realized that I had really had five years of college history and five years of college English. In fact, you know, I just took the AP test. I didn't take we didn't have an AP class. I just took the AP test and exempted it just because that's what we had had. Wow. Wow. So you were educated from a very young age in the history of this country. And so and it's just so I'm assuming it's a passion now because you are still into it. Right. Yeah. And and it's it's that thing that, you know, I've now been studying this for, you know, almost 50 years. And, um, you know, I hate to say You're that in some ways. I, yeah, I don't hate to say that in some ways, but I've been studying it for a long time, that and economics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you read things over time and you see how things build. One thing builds upon another. Yeah. So, you know what? There was two sections that we or that. Yeah. Two articles that well, one article, two sections that we didn't talk about on the radio show. And I wanted to find out a little bit more about this. So the I think it's article. Well, 
Section three. It said it addresses the State of the Union report. Let's see which article that one was. Yeah. Um, so, as I'm looking, so, so it's article about, two. Are, are, right. Article two is the president. That's right. Yes. Article two, section three, the state of the union report. Right. right. Yes. <laughs> Would you say based on at first, can you tell us what's supposed to be? What, what is the state of the union report supposed to be like according to the Constitution? Well, OK, so according to the Constitution and let me find it here, mm-hmm. it says the president shall at stated times. Oh, no. Sorry. I'm looking at the wrong part here. Mm-hmm. Um but it says here, you can find it, that um, it says here, he sh- this is talking about the president, mm-hmm. he shall from time to time give to Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Mm-hmm. He may on extraordinary con- um, occasions convene both houses, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so what that really is is saying, hey, here's what's going on with the country. Here's because. Congress is making the laws, and the president is is supposed to be carrying them out. Mm -hmm. And so he's giving a report saying, here's what's going on. Here's what I see, and that sort of thing. Okay. So when it comes to – so that's, that's like, a very vague, and I think that's why we get so much, right? Um, I feel like when we see the State of the Union address, it's turned into such a political spectacle at this point. Um, I don't think people understand the importance of a union report. Do you think it's as important today as it was back then? Um, It's become a stage thing now. I think that the founders would be horrified. If you go back and read – Washington's first um, what we call State of the Union but um, what they were talking about there um, it was the that report it really reads like a letter Mm -hmm. and today's State of the Union is all bragging and I I I and everything Mm -hmm. else and digs at people Mm -hmm. and other kinds of things going on yeah and you you have like the Democrats clapping when they say something when the Democrats up there and the Republicans clapping, and and like you, as you said before to me that the whole faction problem is a real problem. I mean that's what we were trying to prevent, and here we are having our State of the Union address, and we have we see just that factions. It, it's it's factions all over the place, mm-hmm. and if you go read. Washington's first um, address, mm-hmm. then it reads like a letter and it is complimentary of things. It says, hey, here's some things I think we need to do. He talks about setting up the patents, which we'd done. He's saying, okay, I expect you to, to do this. Hey, we're going to need some appropriations for this. This part is do- going well. Mm-hmm. But there were no, I mean, it was when um, you, you read the things and he's saying, um, when he says I, it's like, I'm really pleased to see that you've done this or whatever. It's yeah, complimentary. See. It's none of this mm-hmm. digs and everything. And it was short. So it, when you say short, how long did it last? <laughs> um, it's hard to say, you know, just kind of reading through it. I, it's mm-hmm. about three pages pr- that I've got printed out here. Okay. And, um, oh, three pages? Wait. Not even three pages. <laughs> but now we have whole notebooks and um, multiple pages that can be ripped up individually like Nancy Pelosi did. But um, 
So going so so the reason why I want to talk about the state of union and what it's supposed to be and is because I feel like that is another highlight of how we've moved so far away from the constitution. Mm-hmm. How we are and, and the constitution was put in place to make sure that we don't do the things that we're mm-hmm. doing right now. Do you think it was inevitable that do, do you think the constitution was so good that um, when it was written that it would have prevented just human behavior because I feel like we're kind of dealing with human behavior. Well, we're dealing with human behavior, mm-hmm. but um, part of the reason why we ended up having to have the Bill of Rights and mm-hmm. people insisted upon it was that the initial the Constitution itself was vague enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that we had is just things just like what we're doing right now. We're talking on the radio, which is electronic communication. Mm-hmm. So. Washington and John Adams both gave State of the Union addresses in person to Congress. Hmm. Starting with Jefferson, Mm -hmm. he just sent a letter to Congress, and all of the presidents for the next hundred years just would send a letter to Congress until Woodrow Wilson in 1913. So over a hundred years, they didn't give a speech. Mm -hmm. They were writing a letter. Okay. And so with that, you don't get the bitter partisanship, you don't get the puffery and all of that. It's mm-hmm. truly a report. This is it's just what a report. We had. That's right. It almost feels like our state of the union can just be a uh, email at this point. <laughs> just email me the state of our union, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's go into trade a little bit. Okay. Um, so we were we got into this very interesting conversation, and I feel like this is where my some of my interests merged with your interests because as you were talking, you we were talking about. Um, just trade in general. And one of the statements you made was that back then we would be considered the China of today. And I found that to be pretty fascinating. And you started talking about textile and industry. So can you explain why you said that and why do you think that? Okay. So in the Industrial Revolution, a lot of that started in England. Mm-hmm. And England became the textile capital of the world. And they had their technology for their looms. They had the steam engines to power them. They had the water wheels and everything. And so that was all very mechanized. Mm-hmm. And so they were, that's actually what where the South was growing up because we were growing the cotton here and we were shipping it over to England. Mm-hmm. They were turning it into cloth and fabric and all of that and then shipping it all over the world. We, the United States, were the low-cost producers of cotton, mm-hmm. and we were also – we had low wages over here, relatively speaking, and low cost compared to England. We didn't have the technology, and that's where I say China, and I would think even China more, say, 20 or 30 years ago, where they really hadn't developed their manufacturing like they have today, but they were the low, co- real low-cost thing, and what they really had going for them, they didn't have technology, mm-hmm. but they had you know, lots of labor and at low cost. Now, talking to some people that are doing business over there and all of that, you have countries like Vietnam, mm-hmm. that the Chinese um, factories are now starting to put things into Vietnam <laughs> and take advantage of their low-cost labor. Mm. So they were, the, they were the industry. They were the industrial side of things. Right. Um, now, I mean, it seems like everything's made in China. It is. Right? So it's, it's still the same? Like, it, it, 
I guess I'm trying to figure out um, how is it because we were like I don't I don't consider um, oh I get it I get it I get it China is low cost in production now in America we were low cost in production then back then right. gotcha okay all right okay everybody I got it now I you listen to me go through my mental I was trying to process this <laughs> and when when you said that the first thing I thought about was that we're still kind of there right um, you you mentioned that the North was who brought industry to America. Right. And and they had several things for that. One is that they had a lot of streams and that sort of thing mm-hmm. where they could use water power because when you had the industrialization and you had these machines, you had needed lots of water power. They had lots of labor up there and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, that's where most of the textile industry first went was to the north. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the South was agrarian and the North was becoming industrialized. And Interesting. Well, it all makes sense, right? Paris is still the cap- fashion capital of the world. Right. <laughs> and New York Fashion Week is number two. So um, I think that's hilarious. Um, even though some people say Asia, but mm-hmm. that's a whole other conversation up for debate. We're not talking about fashion. But um, so continuing on. How did the in building industry in America affect trade and tariffs? Well, so originally, when you looked back at the Constitution, there were mm-hmm. two ways the federal government could get money. Mm-hmm. One was through ter- import duties, mm-hmm. and the other was through direct tax, not direct taxation of the citizens, but they would tax the states based upon their populations, and then the states would pay those taxes. People would pay the taxes to the states, and the states would pay the taxes to the federal government. Mm -hmm. Well, in the North, they were not importing that many things compared to the South. The South was producing lots of cotton that they would sell to England, Mm -hmm. and so the ships would come to the South, pick up the cotton, Mm-hmm. take it to England, and then when they sailed back, they wouldn't sail back empty. They would sail back with lots of goods. And it was cheaper mm-hmm. for the South to buy the goods from England and just shipped over that way mm-hmm. than to have them shipped down from the North. But the South was paying the majority of the taxes because they were paying all of these import duties. Mm-hmm. The North was not paying as much in the way of import duties, and they really wanted high import duties so the people in the South and the rest of the country would buy from them. Mm. So, you know, you had these tensions going on. Right, right. So we almost had to create um, policy, right, uh, around this because it wasn't a thing at one point. And what what policies came out of industry coming to America? Well, okay. So over- or which amendments, I should say. Well, <laughs> actually, probably the, unfortunately, the 16th Amendment, which was like gave us the income tax yeah. and the direct <laughs> okay. taxation of people. Mm-hmm. But, um, and so when we quit taxing the number of people mm-hmm. and we went, you know, and that really grew just because the budget became so big mm-hmm. and um, the federal government just needed ways to get more and more money. Yeah. So that wasn't directly from the industrialization, mm-hmm. but what you really had, the North became very industrialized, the South was still very agrarian. Mm-hmm. You started having lots of regulation of business for various reasons. Mm-hmm. You had the ICC and all of that throughout the 30s that regulated trucking and what could mm-hmm. be done and set, set rates, this, that, and the other. And so you did have... And up north, for example, one of the things that the government was spending, and often 
there were private individuals building canals mm -hmm. to ship things around. Um, you had um, some state governments and all of that that were also building canals because originally you had to move a bunch of stuff. A canal was the way to do it. Okay. Then we had the trains that came in mm -hmm. and the railroads. And um, at the time of the Civil War, I remember seeing something that said that England was number one in terms of railroads. Hmm. The North, if it was treated as a separate country, was number two, and the South would have been number three. <laughs> and so hmm. once you started to get that transportation, it started to open things up. Mm -hmm. And then the South, you know, mm -hmm. in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they became the low-cost producer, and the textiles started moving to the South. And those companies started coming down here because the wages up north were high because they had developed so many other kinds of things and in other industries. And you needed low-skilled labor down here that was relatively cheap. So, um, okay. So with all of your information, your knowledge, right? I mean, I feel like because you know the, the details of things, when you look at where the country is today, what do you feel is like one of the greatest, um, I guess you could say, missteps, mistakes, t takeaways that are things that have happened that is so far away from the Constitution? Um, what's the thing that stands out to you as of today? Well, what we've had is so much growth in the federal and the whole idea of the Constitution was to have a very, very limited government. Mm -hmm. And. The, uh, the original argument was don't worry about this thing here. It's always going to be so small. Mm. No one's going to really worry about that. But now it's become the behemoth. Mm -hmm. And I think and this became a part of the Constitution when we had the 16th and the 17th Amendments. Mm -hmm. And so the 16th Amendment allowed for the direct taxation of citizens, okay, through the income tax. And the 17th Amendment was the direct election of senators. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of the Constitution was that the in Congress, the House of Representatives represented the people, mm -hmm. and the Senate represented the states. Mm -hmm. The federal government received money from import duties, which mm -hmm. is people buying things, mm -hmm. and they received funds from the states where those taxes were directly apportioned. And so what you had, since the states were having to pay those taxes and they were appointing the senators, mm -hmm. if you had a Senate that started saying, you started wanting to spend all this money and everything else, the states, and when I say that the states appointed them, the state legislatures appointed okay. them. Mm -hmm. And so then the state legislatures would say, wait a minute here, that's not your job to spend all this money. If we're going to spend, anybody's going to spend any money, it's us. Right. <laughs> and so that kept spending down and way down until that. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago, I plotted a thing and it was looking at the cost at the price levels, mm -hmm. essentially in inflation. Mm -hmm. And what you saw starting from the 1790s mm -hmm. all the way up to 1913, mm -hmm. the price levels kept coming down. And that's through industrialization. You can make things cheaper and cheaper and prices mm -hmm. kept coming down. 1913 was an inflection point. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, Price levels have been going up and up and up. Mm -hmm. And what happened in 1913? Well, because we, I was thinking 1920, like, you know, the roaring 20s. But 1913, we had three things. Mm -hmm. We had the ratification of the 16th and the 17th Amendments, which we just spoke about. Mm -hmm. And then we created the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. And those three things all happened then. 
and like I say, you can see if you take that, take those price levels, apply mm -hmm. a smoothing algorithm to just get rid of the little variability from year to year, you see that inflection point and it's just very obvious. So now that you, when you mentioned the Federal Reserve, I have to go to Jekyll since we're in Georgia. Um, Jekyll Island is a beautiful location here in Georgia. Actually, Kelvin and I go every year um, on my birthday to just kind of take a break and hang out there. We just, it's a little secluded area. However, there's something very significant that took place at Jekyll Island. Um, I think they said at one point, a uh, majority of the world's wealth would convene there because it was obviously the, between Jekyll and Sea Island and all those other little little islands, um, apparently, you know, we had the Crane family, we had the Vanderbilts and Rockefellers, all all the, the big names. Um, can you explain what why Jekyll Island is so significant? So Jekyll Island, in about I think it was 1910, they held a meeting down there, and there were some bankers that were really concerned. Mm -hmm. about the banking situation here and you had lots of small banks mm -hmm. and I'm going to try and go off a little bit on a quick tangent here yeah. to, to give an example of what was going on here and what happened is that you had a small bank and you'd have these runs mm -hmm. uh, bank runs and all of that in Georgia, one of the reasons why Georgia has not built up and become a big banking center, and Charlotte did, was that Georgia has banking laws. Mm -hmm. We had lots of little banks that were, say, one county or whatever else. Hmm. And so what would happen is, let's just say a tornado hits some small county. Mm -hmm. Then people are either pulling their money out because they've got to replace stuff or they're pulling their money out of the bank because they're afraid of a bank run and losing it because everybody else is doing it, and it would doom the bank. Mm -hmm. So on a larger scale, that also happened, you know, in the country. You would have localized areas where you'd have bank runs and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so what these bankers were doing and coming together and they said, hey, we want to have a large federal bank. And they weren't using the term federal. They were talking about us being national. And that would really just be an umbrella organization for a bunch of regional reserve banks that would hold banking reserves mm -hmm. that could lend money from one reserve bank to the other. So if you've got a run over here, they can move money from mm. place to place um, that had certain loan facilities and all of that mm -hmm. for some commercial paper and that sort of thing, but to provide that sort of financing so that you just didn't have these little catastrophes that could have easily been, mm -hmm. would not have been a big problem. But the bank was confined to this one small region where they had a big problem. Mm -hmm. And so that's why our bigger banks now seem to be more resilient Okay, because, okay, you've got a big problem over here, mm -hmm. you know, on the East Coast, but hey, you know, things on the West Coast, for example, are, they're oh, still yeah. fine or vice versa or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you don't, but a small bank is really dangerous. And so when they came, went to Jekyll, they were concerned these were just the bankers that were right. concerned. were there elected officials there? no no this was actually a very secret meeting and they went down there and because they didn't want anybody to know that they were down there mm -hmm. they each went they took a private train down there but they each arrived to to the train at different times and when they were on the train they only used first names so that the servants and staff and all of that 
wouldn't be able to know who all was on, was down there having these discussions. Because these were like extremely wealthy men, right? Do you do you know who all was there? Do you remember? You know, I, I cannot I remember the, the name. There's like an yeah. Aldrich, or there were there were several of them there. Yeah. And so yes, yeah, so they so down there they were having these discussions and they're working very hard coming coming up with this plan of what would solve some of these problems. And so they worked this up. Um, it was presented to Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, Congress eventually it was presented to Congress, um, mm-hmm. and Congress didn't like it. It really there weren't enough politics in it. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, in 1913, they took a, sort of that plan, a portion of it, and all of that, mm-hmm. added some politics to it, and that became our Federal Reserve. So I okay. So I, I quickly googled <laughs> who was at the meeting because I I think our listeners want to know as well. Um, but apparently, what I found was that the 1910 meeting was organized by Senator Nelson Aldrich, and he invited several people that included Abram. Uh, Andrew, the Assistant Secretary of Treasury, Henry P. Davidson, a business partner of the Morgans, Charles Norton, President of the First National Bank of New York, Benjamin Strong, another Morgan friend um, who was head of Bankers Trust, um, Frank Vanderlip, who was the president of the National City Bank, and Paul Warburg, who was a partner with Kuhn, uh, Loeb and Company, which and a, a German citizen. He was a German German citizen. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so apparently, those are all the people that were there. And it's funny because I thought for a long time that it was the Morgans, and you know, I, from my my mind, I was like, man, the Morgans, the Vanderbilts, like you know, Rockefeller, they all came and met, the, but. They all had, there are a lot of them that had houses in that area, but this meeting was, it was a pretty official meeting. I mean, that's interesting. I don't think we could do that today. Uh, I think you could. I mean, what this mm-hmm. was is it, this was a, a clandestine meeting. It wasn't mm-hmm. official. In fact, yeah. they did everything they could to keep it secret. That's <laughs> true. Um, so but, they probably are already having these so, meetings, right? <laughs> yes, there probably are things like that going on today, mm. and they're hatching plans and all of that. Yeah. Or, and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe those things will come into being or maybe not, you know, and they're well. getting them to the right people or maybe not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I won't pull out my conspiracy arm, but um, I I, I've, I've had a name Bilderberg keeps coming to my mind by the, in the Bilderberg group, but that's just my my little conspiracy mind. Okay, so continuing on, I thought that was something fascinating about Georgia and Jekyll Island. And if you go to if you go there and you stay there, especially if you stay in the old um, original clubhouse, you see a lot of pictures from then. Um, I don't think any of these people were in those pictures, but there's a lot of pictures from the residents that were there. So. Moving on, um, I wanted to kind of transition into today, um, what we're doing today and how can we get things back on track. What do you think, from a historian perspective, what do you think is necessary to get things back on track? I think... And that's a loaded question. It's it's a very difficult question. I Mm -hmm. think the first thing about it is that people really need to know and understand how all levels of government are supposed to work. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I remember, and this has probably been about 20 years ago when John Linder was the congressman from here. Mm-hmm. 
and I was at a town hall meeting where a bunch of high school students were there. Mm-hmm. And they kept asking him about rules in their high school. Okay. And, you know, he's like, I'm sorry, I can't do anything about these, you know, and that, okay? And right. these were high school seniors or whatever, and they did not understand, mm-hmm. okay, these are the rules of the school. We have local, you know, city laws or county law ordinances. Mm-hmm. We have state laws. We have federal laws. And this is his job. Mm-hmm. This is her job and whatever else. And, you know, that's just outside of their thing. And right now, I'd say that there's a goodly portion of the population that mm-hmm. does not really understand where yeah. different things should occur within the government. And so people think, oh, I like this idea, and maybe it is a good idea, mm-hmm. but it shouldn't be at the federal level. Right. It should be at the state level, or maybe it's a local ordinance or whatever. Mm-hmm. To your point, I saw that when I worked with some city council races, um, it there were people who wanted them, were asking them questions about school, and the, the council member would say, you know, that's the school board, that's not me. And, it, and you're right, there is a constant having to educate people on what you can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that's something that we can do as, as elected officials. I mean, I'm not elected official, but our elected officials, I do think that that's something that can be uh, easily addressed, you know, through maybe putting it on your website. You know, I think that not assuming that everyone understands. Well, I think that that kind of it's a, a bigger and deeper education in some ways because it's mm-hmm. got to be deep enough in there so that when your reaction is, yes, oh, no, that's not from them. That's that's over here. Yeah. You know, that's not a federal issue. That's a state issue. Mm. This is this. This is that. And that mm. has to be – I mean, it takes a while for yeah. people's ideas and impressions mm-hmm. and everything. And so if you've spent – if as an adult, if you spent 20 years thinking this way, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to go – you know, change yeah. on a dime and change your thinking. True. What do you think about the Electoral College? I think it's absolutely necessary. Okay. And so the beauty and the genius of it mm-hmm. is that it keeps out one whole bunch of fights. So <laughs> the idea with it was was that you didn't want to have a few states dominating the entire country and turning the small states into a bunch of colonies. Mm. And so, so it's not about limiting your voice, everyone. <laughs> right. And so, you know, for example, mm-hmm. if you had a national vote, just a direct national vote, a few states, yep. um, New York, California and all of these, mm-hmm. you know, if they went heavily for one candidate or, you know, or for one party or whatever else, mm-hmm. they would dominate things even with the rest of the country there. So what it forces, especially on the presidential level, yeah. They've got a campaign in all 50 states, mm-hmm. and they've got to pay attention to all 50 states. So that's mm-hmm. item number one. Mm-hmm. Item number two is in terms of cheating, mm-hmm. okay? If you had a direct national election, you know, just the popular vote, well, then you could have massive cheating in one area mm-hmm. that would just overwhelm all these other things. Now, if you're going to cheat, you have to get the electors from each state. So you got to cheat in all these different states <laughs> if you're going to cheat and steal the election. Right. And so hmm. it, well, makes it, hard, it makes it harder to cheat. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm sure there are people listening right now that's thinking, well, I mean, we're still cheating. But I mean, I, you know, I... That's a whole other conversation around the cheating and not cheating and all this other stuff. Um, I, I do think that I see the Electoral College as a 
protection mechanism as well. Um, there are people who feel like, or what do you say, I should ask, to people who feel like it's it's a um, a mechanism that basically says that other that that the voters are not intelligent enough to make the the right decision. Well, what it's saying is is that it's not just one little area or one little group or whatever else and that group might be the population of New York or California or whatever else. Yeah. But different people have different perspectives all the way across the country. Right. And so you can't have and the whole idea that the con- the founders were trying to stop having factions and so you wouldn't want to have one big dominant faction the majority really imposing their will on the minority you want to be able to have to spread that power out so that they cannot take advantage of that mm-hmm. you know you don't want to you know we had been colonies before and we felt like we had been taken advantage of mm-hmm. by powerful England. Right. And so we didn't want to have a few powerful states and the rest of them be colonies. So do you think that we should always have a balance in government? Like, do you think that do you think there it would be good if we had a Republican president, Republican House and a Republican Senate? Similar similar to what we well, exactly what we had with, with Biden early on. Um, no, I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> what we really need is a Congress and a president that are committed to running the government as it should. Mm. And so just having two warring factions, Mm -hmm. um, it may keep you from doing some really bad things, but it also means that you may not get anything done that really needs to be done. Right. So I don't think that it's, I think you need to have a balance of interest, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be a balance of parties. And now that doesn't mean that, hey, if you had all Republicans, that everything's going to be great. Or if you had all Democrats, everything would be great or everything would be terrible. Mm -hmm. But you do need that balance of interest to offset things. I want to see our three branches of government operate as three branches of government. You know, it sounds like that's what you're saying as well, is that you want that we we just need you to operate within the rules and what was set. And if every group did that and every branch did that, then we should be fine. So coming to a close, um, what... What do you think? What what did you think about the speaker vote and the fact that it went so long? I think that was a historical moment, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on. I don't think people under I don't think a lot of people understood what was happening. Um, and just from a concept perspective, for me, I felt like we were watching history because even though you're living in it right now, years from now people will be able to talk about that moment well i was conflicted in a lot of ways and so Mm -hmm. one of the things that people have to realize now Mm -hmm. and whenever somebody's running for congress they say i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that i'm going to go to washington i'm going to kick butt (laughs) okay they when somebody says that they're either lying to you or they don't know what they're talking about Mm. a congressman that goes to washington or congressperson Mm -hmm. is one quarter of one percent Right. And so they really don't have that much power. Mm -hmm. What they have to do if they're going to do it is they're going to have to build a big enough coalition Mm -hmm. and bring enough votes along to accomplish something. Mm -hmm. The real power in Washington right now are with the um, House and Senate leadership and the committee chairman. 
Yeah. And so the, they basically write this stuff and everybody else is kind of forced to march and go along with it. Mm-hmm. And so what you were seeing was a fight over who's going to be the leadership mm-hmm. and who is going to listen to whom. <laughs> and so I was conflicted because, you know, there were things that needed to be addressed. Mm-hmm. But it was a really messy process, and you knew in the end that um, <laughs> right. there was only so much that small group could actually do. Right. Okay, that's a good perspective. Um, how do you how do you find comfort in these times? Because having as much knowledge that you have, what what do you where do you find comfort? Uh, I don't know if it's comfort as opposed to perhaps <laughs> hope that we can change things. And I will okay. say this much. Mm-hmm. You know, I really became aware of politics and everything else in the 1970s. The first real election, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the election of 72. Mm-hmm. The first real election that I had a lot of interest in and all of that was in 76 with uh, when Reagan was in the primary and mm-hmm. lost in the primary to Gerald Ford. Mm-hmm. But I remember, because my parents also had a business, and I remember the tough economic times I remember the mood of the country was sort of this dour, you know, the Russians are eventually going to take us over. Mm. It's only a matter of time. We're going downhill. We've got these gas shortages. We've got this and that. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got all of these layoffs. And then Reagan came in and was elected in 1980, took office in 81. Mm -hmm. And within a couple of years, things had turned around. Yeah. And so... You know, we we had things like that can change, you know, can turn around. I can tell you that in, you know, 1981, I had a girlfriend mm-hmm. that was really upset with me um, <laughs> for some of my thoughts and, and ideas and all of that because her dad had been laid off. Mm. And he had lost the best job that he was probably ever going to have, you know. Wow. And, um, you know, it's or at least going forward just because the economy had kind of changed and it yeah. took him a while. And so we were going through some rough times. Yeah. But it changed around and we had an, another real good decade. And then, mm-hmm. you know, really, we've had several very, you know, fairly good decades since then. So, is, so do you have hope that this is going to turn around? Is it because it just naturally does or do you feel like we need someone to lead? I don't think if you put all of your hope in a person, you're going to be disappointed. Right. Very true. I think that, and in fact, one of the things that has bothered me over the last 20 years is I would see these ads that would come up there on the internet or whatever else. George Bush says, uh, you know, Barack (laughs) Obama says, Mm. you know, Donald Trump says, now Biden says, or whatever else. Biden has just done this and it's, you know, get a free telephone Mm. or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. We don't need that. What we really need mm-hmm. is a is good governance. Right. And I think that people that things will ch- can change. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, it's not guaranteed that it'll change. Mm-hmm. We could continue to go downhill, mm-hmm. or um, we could turn around. I'm hopeful mm-hmm. that we will turn things around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really necessary, but you need to remember. Mm-hmm. In the 1800s, mm-hmm. I think it was Chile that was a richer country than the United States. Interesting. You know, and so, well, you know, countries where you're not guaranteed. Yeah. Well, look at England. Mm-hmm. Right. England was, you know, 200 years ago, 
mm-hmm. a much, much richer country than the United States. Mm-hmm. And um, so last question. Okay. When when selecting a presidential candidate to get behind, what do you look for? What is your criteria? Several things. One is they've got to be able to work with people and bring them along. Okay, they're not a dictator. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wish in the debates mm-hmm. that I, I hate the debates. Yeah. Okay. And the <laughs> okay. reason why I hate them is several things. First of all, they expect somebody to come up with a short little 30 second answer or whatever else to (laughs) what should be a complex question Mm -hmm. okay and they're expecting them to have all of the answers just right there off the cuff nobody in the world has all of that really right so then it just becomes all for show Mm -hmm. i would much prefer somebody to say hey you know here's who i'm going to refer to to this and let them tell us you know what what he thinks and what he would do or whatever Mm. because really the presidency is a team. You have your cabinet members mm-hmm. and going all the way on down, and that's how you're going to do it. Now, I'd like to see an awful lot of the federal government reduced, mm-hmm. but I think it's also important to look to see who is surrounding this person. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of advice are they getting? Who, who's whispering in their ear? Mm-hmm. That sort of thing, mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody who just gives a bunch of little right lib answers. So your criteria, it's it really consists of seeing looking for a leader a true leader and not a not 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 the king not someone that's gonna be the head of everything but someone who knows how to lead people that that's one major portion of it and then Mm -hmm. of course there are you know the ideological or whatever things and i want somebody that will reduce the size of government that recognizes the role of government Mm -hmm. that has common sense in Mm -hmm. terms of, okay, we don't want to get into unnecessary wars, but we also don't want to get into the situation. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of World War II, we asked the Japanese, why did you attack us? And they said, we didn't think you'd fight. Mm. And so, you know, it's kind of the um, Kenny Rogers, uh, was it Kenny Rogers that said, sometimes you got to fight when you're a man, (laughs) but it's the difference of knowing when to do it and when not to do it. Right, right. And that's a really big thing because I really don't want to see us in a bunch of wars. But I do think there's times World War II could have largely been averted mm-hmm. if in when after um, the Germans marched into Poland, mm-hmm. um, England and France declared war on Germany. Mm. And they marched into Germany about 20 miles. Mm-hmm. But when 90% of the German army was in Poland, if they had carried on, Perhaps they could have stopped that whole big thing with a little small force, mm. you know, small war. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they had both been through a horrible World War I mm-hmm. and all of that, and nobody really wanted to fight. They didn't have the stomach to fight, but then they eventually were forced to have that stomach to fight. Interesting. Well, John, it is always a pleasure when we get to talk and um we i look i'm gonna be calling you a lot especially in 2024 because we have a lot of 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 options um i actually my my, one of my podcasts is going to be about vivek ramaswamy because he's a he's interesting to me um a lot of things he's saying i'm 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 interested in it but then when you were talking earlier and you were saying you know people who want kind of go in there and think they're going to just change things as one person even though the presidency does have more power than a congressman i will say that 
that is important to me, right? That you're not just kind of selling us a bag of goods. Like, can you actually do it? And um, so I'm, I'm definitely going to take that from you and really look at what people are saying and not just hang on to what they're saying. But I need to know a why. I need to know how you're going to do this. Um, but I'm going to do something with him because he did an interview with Candace Owens and I thought it was really, really good. But um, but I would love to have you back because there's another topic that we need to talk about, which is the history of slavery. Okay. <laughs> and the reason why is because there's been this conversation around accurate history. And I don't think that anyone's teaching accurate history, um, regardless of what side of the aisle you sit on. I think people need to understand the truth around some of the things that they are frustrated with or upset about. And I think it'll, it'll bring some clarity and maybe bring some healing. So we're going to definitely have you back to talk about that. Um, but thank you so much, John. And thank you to everyone who who is listening, who has listened. Remember to like and share. Please, please, please give me feedback if you have it and follow me on social media at JKing the podcast. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much, everyone, for be- for listening. Until next time, have a great day. A lifetime of hard work. Children laughing in the kitchen. Family photos on a restaurant wall. A legacy that lives on. It all comes from the power of a conversation. Like the one Tommy Hall had with First Horizon Bank about taking over his father's Charleston-based restaurant business. Now the table is set for a whole new generation. First Horizon Bank. Let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Tommy. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. The fan is ready for brave season. Are you? 3-1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season.